Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. We have a bonus episode for you this week. It's Gareth here and last year I appeared as a guest on Harry White's podcast. His podcast is called the Modern British Political History Podcast, which uh, is quite a mouthful when you're trying to also say the British Sitcom History Podcast and get the, not get the two mixed up. Anyway, Harry's podcast is really interesting if you're a politics nerd like I am. And he has guests on who generally talk about much more academic subjects than me. But I was a guest and we were talking about the 1980 sitcom Yes Minister, starring Paul Eddington and Nigel Hawthorne. You may remember Yes Minister. It also morphed into Yes Prime Minister. Uh, well, we focused on the, the, the original incarnation of Yes Minister. We talked about it in quite a lot of detail with a real emphasis on politics. Harry is a civil servant by trade, and so it was really interesting to get his insights. This is a slightly different episode in that we haven't covered Yes Minister in the same way that Alan and I would on our regular podcast, but we do have a good look at it, and it's really interesting to listen to Harry talk about how he perceived Yes Minister as a man who joined the civil service a couple of decades later. Slightly different, but I hope you enjoy it and let us know. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram, at BritComPod, or if you come onto our Facebook page, British Sitcom History Podcast, you'll find us. Let us know what you think. Enjoy. Well, Minister, if you ask me for a straight answer, then I shall say that looking at it by and large, taking one thing with another in terms of the average of departments, then in the final analysis, it is probably true to say that at the end of the day, in general terms, you would probably find not to put too fine a point on it, there probably wasn't very much in it one way or other, as far as I can see at this stage. And that, of course, is a quotation from Yes Minister, which we're going to be talking about today. I'm Harry White, host of the Modern British Political History podcast. And for this one, I'm really excited to be joined by my right honourable member from the British sitcom podcast <laughs> constituency, Gareth. Gareth, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself? Hello, Harry. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I'm Gareth Allen. I am one of the presenters of the British Sitcom History Podcast. And we thought there was room for a crossover here with a political sitcom. Exactly. So Gareth's going to be really helpfully answering some questions from me on the sort of sitcom angle of Yes Minister and how does it actually function as, as a sitcom. But I will speak to a little bit more of the historical, political element and as a mm -hmm. civil servant myself, we'll be able to speak towards what is this in terms of a portrayal of the civil service, you know, particularly at the time that uh, it was coming out in, which was yeah. early 80s. So we'll get a bit of both angles. So yeah, I'm very excited about this one, Gareth. How are you feeling for this one? I'm really excited. Well, on our show, we, we obviously we talk about sitcoms. That's what we do. But we do try to place them in context of their time. And we try to do a little bit of social history around the sitcoms as well. And so this is really ticking all of my boxes. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Fantastic. And I think that was one starting point I wanted to make with Yes Minister is touch a little bit on the historical element of it and see what you you think about it, Gareth, to kick things off. So when I think of Yes Minister, mm. I, I immediately think of a quotation from Dominic Sambrick, the historian who talked about Britain mm. in the 70s, and he compared it to something that you'll know very well. He compared it to Faulty Towers. So he yeah. said Britain in the 70s felt like this place where nothing ever quite worked the way it should do. Things were dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. It had seen better days, all of that stuff. And I think a lot of that kind of thinking filters into Yes Minister, the kind of sense of what Britain mm -hmm. was like at that time, the challenges that Britain had. What do you think in terms of how, how it feels in terms of mm -hmm. its context of, of Yes Minister? 
Well, I think the timing is fascinating because I'm 47. I remember Yes Minister and its successor, Yes Prime Minister, when I was a kid. But I I think of it as how you just described as that sort of 1970s post-war consensus, butskillism type of era where it's, it's pre-Thatcher. That's not true. Yes, Minister started in 1980. It started after Thatcher had been elected and it ran to 1982. And then it was revived as Yes, Prime Minister, which we're going to focus on Yes, Minister today. But but, but it, it is a show of the 80s. But it, it doesn't feel like it, does it? It feels like a show of the 70s for, for, from my Absolutely. perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose we should ask the initial question, which is how would you describe the show, Gareth, to someone who hasn't seen it at all? Well, Yes Minister is a supposed inside look at a government department. It's a it's the fictional Department of Administrative Affairs, the DAA, which is Fantastic which name. is this is is gloriously <laughs> meaningless, isn't it? And that's an interesting thing about Yes Minister. It it mixes the civil service with the political. It we we see this interaction between government work and political pressure, a little bit of his personal life as well. But really, it's not a political show. We don't know what party Jim Hacker represents. And it's irrelevant that the clash here is between Jim Hacker, who sort of is our everyman politician representing us, and Sir Humphrey Appleby, who's the civil service apparatchik, who in the context of this drama, is a delayer and uh, an obstructor and an obfuscator and just tries to frustrate every political progress that, that Jim tries to make. If I was going to put a sort of label on on Hacker, I was thinking about what you said. You're right. He is this kind of blank space, isn't he, as a character in some ways. But if there was one, then mm. it would be maybe the type of politician that Thatcher disliked strongly in, in, in the 70s, which was the typical... He's a wet, isn't he? Wet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Compromising consensus making, which many will see very po- see positives of, of that, but Thatcher saw mm-hmm. strongly the negatives of that, of saying, mm-hmm. actually, this is why Britain has been in perpetual decline since probably the end of the Second World War, she might have said, because yeah. there has not been the oomph, the drive, the passion that is needed, uh, which whatever you say about Thatcher, she certainly did definitely br- brought uh, some well, of those uh, elements. Uh, apparently, this was Margaret Thatcher's favourite television programme. Which, not surprising. Um, <laughs> not surprisingly, because I, I suspect that, you know, anecdotally, this was this reflected a frustration that she felt. But I, I, I'm not sure that's a huge endorsement because Margaret Thatcher is not legendary for her sense of humour, is she? No, it, in fact, would often completely miss the, the point of, of jokes, whether, I don't know, deliberately or, or just accidentally. Yeah, she was quite uh, famous yeah. for that. What in terms of predecessors would you see for Yes Minister? I suppose it's quite unusual, isn't it, in that it's perhaps not what you typically would think of as sitcom material. But do you see any predecessors? You know this kind of landscape better than me, Gareth. I, I tell you what, Harry, it, it depends on how, how you define it. So let's let's define it at face value, a political sitcom. There, there really weren't many of this. This was uh, pretty unique at the time. I was, I was thinking about this before we spoke, and what I came up with was more sketch comedy. So there's that famous Beyond the Fringe where Peter Cook was impersonating Macmillan, and it was scandalous at the time. And, mm. and the story is that Macmillan went to see it and was mortified by the whole thing. And I thought about spitting image. Spitting image is sort of around about this time, although not before. It, but, but really, there was no sitcom that was political. There have been plenty since, of course. But when I say it depends how you define it, as I say, on face value, that's what this is. But actually, I think this is fundamentally an odd couple sitcom. You know, it's it's a clash between Hacker, this naive idealistic. He, he, he's got principles, but they don't really stand up to any uh, any bad weather. 
And then you've got Sir Humphrey as a man of order, <laughs> bridal at the suggestion he even had uh, principles. And it's this, this odd couple. It's Steptoe and Son, it's it's Rodney and Delvoy. It's, you know, it, it, the politics is the situation, but the comedy comes from the characters. And actually, it reminds me a little bit of the odd couple in terms of you've got the person who is living in the house already, has their mm. own routines, their own way of doing things. And then often in those kind of situations, you have the sort of interloper coming into the house, don't you? I'm kind of yeah. thinking of Peep Show, for example, as one example yeah. of that. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, yeah. Who just mixes it all up, you know, totally. And t- much to the chagrin of the long-standing resident, which civil servants yeah. are. They're the, the net clues in the title, permanent civil service. So they're, they are the mm. ones running the machinery of government throughout different different persuasions of government. How well do you think it works in terms of how I have a, a, a take on this, but I'd like to hear yours as an outsider to the civil service, but also an insider on sitcoms. How well do you think it works in terms of setting and all the basic logistics? How well do you think the civil service lends itself to the world of a sitcom? Well, uh, on a technical basis, it lends itself very well because with a couple of exceptions, there are no outside broadcasts. It's just a couple of offices. It's a really easy set to build. And so it, it was probably fairly cheap to make, mm. which is which is great. The, the BBC will have loved that. It feels like an outsider looking in. It feels like you're being shown behind a curtain. I, you're a civil servant, Harry. I, I don't have a clue what goes on in these meetings, in these departments, in these conversations. And so whilst I understand this is a fictional portrayal, it is, it's still fascinating to see how these things might work, mm. which, which again, you don't, you don't get that sense of being a fly on the wall when you watch Only Fools and Horses, which is Council Flying Peckham, you know, <laughs> that, that doesn't feel like you're getting an inside view on something. So there, it does have that element to it, which, which adds an element of intrigue. Mm. And from an insider point of view, I think of the civil service as a place where language is key. So often you're communicating, so often you're mm. trying to find the right form of words to persuade, to influence, to find the balance between not causing some massive fracas, but trying to make your point. And that really does quite lend itself to sitcoms because often sitcoms are about language, yeah. aren't they? And playing with words and all yeah. of that does seem to work quite I guess well we should, for it. We should mention the writers at this point. So Anthony Jay and Jonathan Lynn wrote Yes Minister. And Jonathan Lynn is is the younger of the two. And he's very much comes from a comedy background. He was in Cambridge Footlights. He was a contemporary of the Pythons and the Goodies. And you know, if you look at what his career was, it was writing and directing TV comedy, film comedy, and that, that's kind of what he did. Anthony Jay, in contrast, a little older, but he, he was a BBC man originally, but he sort of turned against it in later years, and he went into public relations and worked for the Conservative Party. He worked for Margaret Thatcher, essentially. He was a speechwriter for Geoffrey Howe. So you had that sort of political insider's view as well. I sensed that it was a bit of a howl of frustration for him. Yes, Minister. I get that sense. So with Anthony Jay, that he definitely has this idea of um, what's called public choice theory about, well, you should see the government not just as um, altruistic people trying to deliver on principle, but you should see it as a series mm. of, it's a more cynical view, but it's it's the one he, that I think influences Yesminster. You should see it as different self-interested actors trying to get, get one over on the other or trying to kind of get their own personal benefit. And that's definitely the view of the civil service we, we, we get in this is, is more can of I, that. Can I ask you more on that? Because I'm really fascinated by that. So when you say people are trying to push their own personal agenda, do you mean politicians? Do you mean people within the service? Or, or is the theory that everyone has their own agenda? The theory is that at any organisation, the, the best way to look at it is to reject what might be seen as a, a typical way of looking at uh, an organisation and particularly looking at governments beforehand, which would be, well, 
governments are going to be mainly motivated by principles, the ideology, and also by the voters who elected them. But it's, it takes that view and goes, actually, there's less about principle and it's more about incentives and rational actors trying to maximize their own benefit essentially within the system. So that might be for it to give to give a, a, an example, we're going to talk a bit about why is it that civil servants might be more cautious and in, in this show that it shows so much caution, mm. doesn't it? And that might partly be that there's an argument that there's less to be gained by being bolder because there's so much to lose in terms of press blowback, you know, massive yeah. fracas, all of that. And sometimes that for a, a, an individual working the system can seem like a bigger problem than the potential benefits that, that might be gained by if, the, if you announce some radical, very big, bold maneuver. So you see that in Yes Minister, don't you, where Hacker wants to wants to be quite quite bold, quite exciting, mm. but then mm. there's some reluctance within the civil service. There's a sense of we've seen X happen before and that didn't work out very well. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's off, I think often quite a big influence as well is is the feeling that politicians come with the same or similar ideas, similar answers that have been tried and not worked before, and that the civil service often see their role as the ones who have to sit, to try and caution against taking those those actions. But that can often lead to the frustration yeah. of of politicians who want to enact whatever that, that they're trying to enact and and don't want always yeah. to see the hurdles around the corner. We're yeah, trying I to think that's to. an interesting perspective. And the, the narrative of Yes Minister is we're, we're kind of on Jim Hacker's side. Mm. He's, he's hapless, but he is banging his head up against this civil service wall. And I, the most extreme example we, we I could give you here is there's a whole episode where there's a hospital that has no patients, but it's got a full administrative team. And it's mm. it's the most efficient hospital in the country. And they're all really proud of it, but it's not treating anyone. And, and it's this adherence to policy and procedure rather than actually, what are we trying to really do here you know now obviously that's an ex that's a, a caricature but i'm i hear what you're saying about these ministers who might come in with a bold big idea and it does need a steadying influence that dynamic between ideology and the, the steadying practical hand of, yes. of logistics and practical reality mm. yeah absolutely that, that, i think that's probably necessary for our system to work mm. the other argument is around incentives that are often there's not a huge amount of performance related incentives within the civil service and people have different ideas about this so some some would say that's all well and good because you don't want it to be about just performance pay you want it to be about making a difference civil servants should only be motivated by that but then on the flip side you would say well in private companies the way people typically are motivated but is by performance related pay bonuses mm. all of that kind of thing so there's a good argument that many make that actually that under motivates the civil service to take risks to do the unexpected because mm. you know, failure will have a consequence it will have a big blowback in the press uh yep. you know heads roll but actually success there might not be as many incentives for success there might not be as, as, as many rewards there are examples of very well delivered government policies but they're not often talked about as much as the the, the big failures so everyone will remember the poll tax but how many people remember the rollout of the minimum wage? Probably less. How mm. many people remember mm. the rollout of the smoking ban, which was actually done very smoothly and very effectively, yeah. good take up. I, and it also links a little bit about to the, the press in the UK, which tend to take a more, if it bleeds, it leads kind of approach to the to the news and tend to, tend to mm. be quite interested in the catastrophic failure rather than the sort of well thought through moderate success. So there's a few different kind of incentives that all, all come into play when you ask that question about 
why does the civil service sometimes look overly cautious you know all yeah. of those all those issues we see in yes minister yeah. i was going to ask you about uh any particular sort of favorite elements that you would you would point to or favorite moments maybe that we could we could talk about i like i like the jousting i like mm. the the joust that is personified by jim hacker and sir humphrey appleby it's good writing because Hacker occasionally gets a win. But basically, the pattern is Hacker has a big idea, so Humphrey tries to squash it, and there's usually a bit of manipulation going on. But but occasionally, Hacker gets one over on Sir Humphrey, mm. and that that's great writing to and do that. And he gets better, doesn't he? It, learns he learns how to work the system. Yeah, yeah, he, he absolutely does. And uh, yeah, there is definitely development of the characters as we go along. I think the episodes, just from a writing point of view, the episodes are really well constructed. You know, you get sort of seeds sown early on, and there's lots of moving parts, and then they come together. You know, there were there were three series of seven or eight episodes, and by the end, it felt a little bit formulaic. But I, 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 to be honest, Harry, I think that's just a symptom of watching 25 episodes in a week. You know, I think if you were watching over three years, you probably wouldn't quite feel that. So I don't want to be too critical of that. I'll tell you one thing I do like, one element I really like about Yes Minister, are the, I'm going to say the club scenes. So when Sir Humphrey is out of the office and he's, he's doing his networking, we see John Nettleton as Sir Arnold, who's, who's the permanent secretary of the civil service. And it, it feels like that's where the real business gets done. Mm. And I really enjoy those scenes. There, there's always this element of, of deviousness and machination. I, I really like that part of the programme. And, and just on that, one question you asked me uh, before we started, which was how accurate are some of these portrayals of, of the civil service? And I suspect, mm. particularly you know, in the 70s and 80s, the civil service was a much less diverse kind of place, particularly in terms of number of women that, that feature, well, like, like most organisations, you know, but also less civil servants from ethnic minority backgrounds, less of a representation of the country at large, more of a private school educated focus you know which i think has 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 changed although is not is still not probably where it should be because you've got a third of civil servants a private school educated compared to about seven percent of the country mm -hmm. at large but i think that idea of the gentleman's club probably was quite a big factor of how decisions yeah. were made partly because it was mostly men operating in that environment and probably they also had a lot of time to go away and have a drink because they weren't you had a yeah. different kind of um sexual politics where the, the expectation of men coming home and helping out in the house, looking up, looking reading the kids. the kids' bedtime story probably wasn't yeah. as much there. So you could stay home and uh, you could stay in the gentleman's club and have a whiskey and mm. do the, as you say, do the real politicking. Well, you know what, there's a, look, while we're on the subject, there's a really good episode. And, I, you know, I'm not expecting your listeners to go away and watch all these episodes for, as homework, but if they want to, uh, series three, episode one is called Equal Opportunities. And Hacker realizes that there's no female representation at senior level in the uh, civil service. And so he, we have this character who's a guest, uh, Eleanor Bron in a guest role, who's a female civil servant. And the idea is that Jim wants to get her promoted as a symbol of this bold new world where women can actually work. A radical episode. notion. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so Humphrey tries and tries to scupper this. It's it's all it's all pretty unpleasant, to be honest, but but a very interesting snapshot of the time. But there's a lovely punchline to the episode where Hacker Hacker wins this time, and he manages to persuade Sir Humphrey that Eleanor Bronze's character can get this promotion. You know, but when it's not her turn, but she turns it down. She's off to work in the city. She's off to work in the city and make a boatload of money. Which, which is welcome to 1983, Minister. Mm. Uh, but she she scolds Hacker for being just as patronising as Sir Humphrey. You know, he's trying to 
pat her on the head and say, and off you go. There you go. There's a job for you. You're very good. And it's, it, it, I think it's really well written. It's really well observed. Well, quite honestly, Minister, I want a job where I don't spend endless hours circulating information that isn't relevant about subjects that don't matter to people who aren't interested. <laughs> I want a job where there's achievement rather than merely activity. I'm tired of pushing paper. I want to be able to point to something and say, I did that. I don't understand. I know. That's why I'm leaving. Surely not saying that the government of Britain is unimportant. No, it's very important. It's just that I haven't met anyone who's doing it. And I'm sure that kind of element of women entering into the service and having quite a paternalistic, patronising approach taken to them I was, you know, obviously not there at the time, but feels like it, 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 you know, it's very likely that that was the case often. And she becomes a bit of a cipher for the woman, yeah, the female civil servants like having yeah. to enter into the industry. Yes. I was going to ask you how, uh, I, I think it's probably an unfair question to ask you directly. Is this realistic or was this realistic? How would you know? It was 1980 before you were born. But perhaps a question, a better question would be how have things changed since that that kind of paternalistic gentleman's club of the uh, 70s and 80s. To me, as an outsider, it feels to me like the civil service is a much more modern organisation now. But I think with any large institution, be it a government department or a bank or the NHS, you have that inertia, don't you? Yes, I think a lot of the change is similar to the rest of the work world in the UK. There's certainly a lot more women in the civil service. Um, If you look at the stats, the last I've seen... And people who are really geeky on this sort of thing, like me, uh, the Institute for Government is is a really good organisation for these kind of stats. But you've got about roughly parity in terms of men uh, to to women, uh, female civil servants. It, do, it interestingly will differ a bit by department. I think uh, the civil service tends to reflect what's going on in the rest of the country. What one one element where there's something maybe that a bit a bit different is that I think technical skill is more valued in the civil service than it used to be so you used to have in, in, in the same idea of the gentleman's club you used to have this idea that the generalist is the consummate civil mm. servant the renaissance man the man who does a little bit of this a little bit of that the the great amateur it's kind of a british stereotype as, as, as well um, and expertise was almost frowned upon almost seen as a bit well that's a bit parochial to have very specific expertise well Harry, uh, there's a there's a really good example of that isn't there in the in the show there's a a couple of episodes where ian lavender who people will know from he was pike in dad's army ian lavender plays a, a junior civil servant who is an expert it, it, the idea is that he wants there to be defined failure parameters for projects in other words it, 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 Projects might fail rather than just being quietly uh, forgotten. And this guy and his report are treated like radioactive waste by Sir Humphrey because they don't want that sort of expertise. And there's a there's an absolute disaster for Sir Humphrey when this this character accidentally gets to speak to the minister. I thought that was really funny. And 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 again, I don't. Well, well, Harry, it's interesting what you're saying because I thought, well, that's obviously a, a caricature. That's 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 not true. <laughs> but you're saying maybe it was to some extent. There's, if you read uh, good reports on this type of thing, that is something that consistently has come up about lack of technical deep expertise, too much churn in the civil service is often seen as an mm-hmm. issue. So people moving around from one department to another too quickly. I think the churn element. If you if you spoke to the Institute for Government, they would say. That is still a big issue. People move around too much. They don't get a kind of deep embedded knowledge of, of what they're working on. The technical expertise, ha- there has been some shifts. There's been a real emphasis on, in the civil service over recent decades on 
the idea of professions and that you learn particular deeper expertise, whether it's in finance or HR mm. or whatever it might be. Um, so there is, there is, there are, there have been some shifts over recent decades. But I think the idea of the policy generalist hasn't quite uh, died a death. I think it would be fair to say. And the idea of everyone just having humanities degrees, the classics degree. I'm sure. I'm sure Sir Humphrey could read Sir, the Odyssey. Sir Humphrey has a classics degree, exactly. Yeah. Um, that I I don't doubt was true, particularly at the time that there were a lot of classics degrees from Balliol flying around, mm-hmm. and and there has been a, a shift in that. But actually, the world of the civil service is still quite humanities degree focused. So there's an interesting intellectual snobbery within Yes Minister. Mm. Uh, we see actually it's, it's called Bailey College uh, rather than Balliol, which I, I suspect is for libel reasons. But um, uh, we, we we see quite a lot of that. So Humphrey at his alma mater, and there are many, many, many disparaging references to Jim Hacker's degree from the London School of Economics, which is regarded as you know not a place where gentlemen would go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that sort of sets my chippiness alarms go off. You know. I was just uh, going to say on humanities but, degrees as well. I think part of the reason why it was historically there's been so many civil servants with humanities degrees is because the civil service lends itself to being good with words and writing long tracks. So you're often trying to persuade ministers, you're often writing long reports, but there is a, it definitely a good argument that there's been a lack of ex- technical expertise. And there has been some shifts. There's been efforts to get more STEM subjects expertise into the civil service. And I think there's been from my understanding, moderate success there, but there's probably probably still quite a ways a ways to go. I, I, I would imagine on that front. What about some of your least favourite elements, Gareth? In Yes Minister, as I say, I think some of my criticism of the show might be uh, based on the, the the manner in which I watched it all back to back. But I found actually some of the the, the Sir Humphrey monologues. By the end, they were starting to grate with me a little bit. So you actually used used something similar at the top of the show as a, as a, as a quote to kick us off, and it was a, it was a perfect example of that obfuscatory uh, language that Sir Humphrey uses. And and I think you know as the series progresses, the writers kind of leaned into that because it always gets a big laugh. And sometimes you can have too much of a good thing, you know. Like if you watch the later episodes of Last of the Summer Wine, it's just three blokes in a bath rolling down a hill. <laughs> You've got to you you sort of lean into the the, the you play the hit, you know. But uh, overall, I like Sir Humphrey and I like his his obstructionism. I like the joust. That is my favourite part of the show. But then when it's when it's overdone a little bit, it feels it feels a bit uh, lumpy. The other thing that we haven't even mentioned yet, which kind of sums up why I don't like it, is the third character in this odd couple drama, which is Bernard Woolley, who is uh, Jim's private secretary right i've got that right private secretary yes that's so he's right, his yeah. kind of his, his body man his his assistant is the civil servant who is closest to like i understand within the civil service i understand that role but within the sitcom i don't really know what he adds it doesn't really work for me there's a there's a he sort of acts as a bit of a halfway house between the two characters but i, I don't know sometimes that's useful for moving on the narrative but I, I don't know. I don't like him. Is he like the? Uh, is he like the Uncle Albert? Of, uh, I wonder if he's the yes cipher almost for the audience. In that, often he will ask the sort of ignorant questions, particularly um, to uh, Sir Humphrey. He'll say, "Well, isn't it right that a politician should do X, Y, Z? Should try and impl- implement their manifesto?" And you'll get some. Oh goodness me! No. Be cynical <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. answer, incre- incredibly Game of Thrones esque answer. 
uh-huh. from Sir Humphrey in his no, role. I, 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 yeah, it's not really criticism of Derek Falls, the actor. It's, it, it's more the role. I'm not. I'm, I, mm. I don't know. It doesn't really. It doesn't really. I think without him, you'd you'd struggle. You do kind of need that person, but it, it, yeah, it just feels like it's it's not neither one thing nor the other. But you have I, just mentioned. I know you've asked me my least favorites, but I feel like I do need to say. We've talked about Sir Humphrey a lot. Nigel Hawthorne, the actor who plays him, is wonderful. He is by far the best actor in this production. And that's a great example of where Bernard will ask him an impertinent question and his reactions, his incredulity, sometimes his anger. You know, it's it's, it's really great acting. I, I think he I think he's brilliant. I mean, he's you know obviously he's an Oscar-nominated actor, isn't he? It's not. I'm, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm cracking a code here. He, Nigel Hawthorne is a good actor. And on the obfuscating monologues, in terms of how much does that reflect the civil service? I mean, civil servants often can use flowery language, definitely. I mean, like I said, there's there's a pedigree of coming from humanities degrees, which often privilege using. Lots mm-hmm. of quite complex, flowery, long, long terms, and I think some of that that flows in. Um, and there's also there are examples to the point where there's been articles published about uh, unnecessary terms to use if you're a civil servant. The kind of jargon that really starts to to rub people up the wrong way. Um, you mm. know those kind of slightly strange uh, idioms like we'll run that idea up the flagpole and see if anyone salutes yeah. it. Those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In- I also think there are sometimes institutional turns of phrase and verbal tics. I've got a few friends who are in the legal profession and they all say, well, in my view, such and such. And I don't know anybody else who says in my view. It's just, but it seems to be something that lawyers say. And with the flowery language, uh, obfuscating language as well, part of that comes from a civil servant perspective is that uh, there's a common idea that you should be very wary if you're a civil servant of ever saying no to a minister or I disagree. You should always be talking about the the risks of taking policies, the benefits, mm. but never never directly, even if you are personally squeamish about the idea, never directly so, no, saying, I'm... no, I disagree. So that can no, sometimes be some quite saying. twisted kind of answers where you're, you're, you're sort of turning in on yourself, trying to find a way of expressing what you want to express. <laughs> I'm thinking of Sir Humphrey saying, very brave minister. Ah, uh, very brave. <laughs> or, or there's bold, and then I think isn't courageous, uh, courageous yes i think yes. he says something to the effect of if, if if you say it's bold that might lose your seat but if you say it's courageous that might lose you the next general election <laughs> yeah 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 very um, good so i was thinking about what what bits i uh was less fond of um in in this as well i i think i probably i probably already given a a flavor of of what some of it is which is there definitely is and i think it comes from anthony j that cynical perspective uh there's a good quotation from him about yes minister where he said uh in yes minister we're showed almost everything that the government has to decide is a conflict between two lots of private interests that of the politicians and that of the civil servants trying to advance their own careers and improve their own lives and that's why public choice economics which explains why all this was going on was at the root of almost every episode of Yes Minister. So it's a very Game of Thrones-esque, very game theory-esque understanding of how institutions works, where principles don't play a huge role in it. It's much more Machiavellian than that. So it's profoundly it depends on what cynical, you think about it? that. It is very it's a very cynical way of look, looking at it. And and I you wouldn't be surprised to, to to know that I would argue that actually there is altruism and principle that comes mm. into actors in the civil service of course there is self-interest of course there's a game of thrones-esque approach to to things that can sometimes creep in but there is also political convictions and and altruism 
So it's too, it's almost it comes two very different ways of viewing people and how people mm. operate that flow into into how you might think about yes minister. What what do you think about this this stuff, Gareth? I'd be interested in your view on on. Well, I mean, I've got no inside view. I, I know that this is not realistic, mm. but I understand also that it is a caricature of what yes, was realistic. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, you, you know, one would like to think that there is some altruism going on and that people who work within the civil service, it's a career, it's a job, it's a way of earning money. But you're working in the civil service. You know, you mm. didn't go to work for a merchant bank. So there's an element there of trying to make the world better, trying to, you know, do something for your country, however you want to, however florid you want it to sound. You, you know, there is there is an altruism, I think, inherent to it. I used to work for a bank, and I think there is there is some similarity in terms of the institutionalism, uh, the inertia and torpor of the institution and struggling to get things done. I recognize some of that, but I also, I, I don't think, and I speak from personal experience, I don't think you can work for a bank and honestly think you are you know you are advancing the cause of good within the world, <laughs> which is why I don't work for a bank anymore. <laughs> There is, and you do hear positively with civil servants, often when they're asked, why are you doing this job? The answer, I want to make a difference, does crop up quite a lot. Now, yeah. whether sometimes that gets watered down or or gets crunched under the sort of realities sometimes of working in a, a, in a big machinery of government type setup, yeah. I think there, there's definitely something something to that. But yeah, um, Harry, Harry, life is complicated. You know, you can have, you can have, as we see, Jim Hacker has principles, but sometimes they have to be compromised. And that is that is the reality. You can have this great altruism, but sometimes you can be having a really crap day and just not do a very good job. You know, the world is not binary. The world is not simple. And, and, and civil servants, like anyone else, will also be thinking about paying their bills, will we'll, we'll be thinking about how, ca- how can they get the next promotion, often those kind of things, which are perfectly legitimate yeah. kind of rational things to, to, to think about as well. But um, And that, that, that thing yeah. you mentioned before about how, uh, y- y- you know, there's a danger in opposing something because you're, you're exposing yourself to being wrong and, and, you know, it's easier to just keep your head down and, mm. and advance your career. That is not unique to the civil service. That is human nature. So we talked a little bit about uh, our favourite parts of the series, some some bits that we're less fond of. What do you think about the legacy of Yes Minister? Do you see shows that have come after that you see as clear successors Mm. to Yes Minister? Well, look, I mean, the obvious comparison is the thick of it, isn't it? So what we were saying before, Yes Minister, although it's in the 80s, is very much that pre-Thatcher 70s political culture. Whereas the thick of it is very much post-Blair, New Labour, PR type of uh, politics. And it's a really fascinating comparison. Again, purely just looking at the fiction, the sitcoms, the difference between Sir Humphrey and Malcolm Tucker, I know they're not doing the same job, but the difference between the culture there, the difference between the characters, the difference between the world they inhabit is night and day. It's completely different. Now, again, they're caricatures of reality, but I think it's probably fair to say that working in the civil service in the late 70s versus working in the civil service in the early 2000s would be a completely different environment, mm. completely yeah, different my, place to work. From my perspective, I, I think there would be big differences. I think the emphasis on the media, handling the media, that's always been a big part of the civil service, but with mm. the rise of 24-7 media online as well, I, there has been a, a bigger emphasis on how do you keep control of the story at, at, at all times and how, how do you not lose mm. track and 
and having special advisors come in who particularly dedicated or maybe even just solely dedicated to the media handling that to me has, yeah. has had a big rise and it, it's, it's something that um, under Blair was that, that was recognized that there was uh, a bigger emphasis on controlling the, the, the press you had people like Alistair Campbell yeah I, I'm old enough to remember Bernard Ingham who was it was Margaret Thatcher's Alistair Campbell and you know he was he was seen as a bit of a bulldog at the time as well in a more subtle way I think that's that's the interesting thing Alistair Campbell was very public about his uh hmm operations whereas Birmingham was famous for being much more subtle uh, so that so there's interesting thing how perception plays a role in all these yeah all these well, that, well okay so I was going to challenge you there Harry but perception's a better word I think because I think perhaps Bernard Ingham did pretty much well I, I'm, I'm guessing here Bernard Ingham was pretty much the same sort of character and probably did the same things but mm. they weren't reported in quite the same way we didn't mm. have quite such an open culture you couldn't see the mach machine whirring in the background you know Mm, I think that's right. There was a, there was one other. You asked me about the legacy. There was one other sitcom, uh, which which we've mentioned on our program before, which was a, pl a, a sitcom called No Place for a Lady, and this plays into our, um, our our discussion earlier about equal opportunities. So this was a 1992 sitcom starring Penelope Keith, and she was a an, she was a Labour MP, and as the title of the sitcom implies, the. The, the, the comedy stemmed from this. Oh, she's a woman. She's an MP and she's a woman. <laughs> you know? uh, this was five years before. I'm, I'm going to use the expression Blair's Babes in 1997. Um, it's not the only Westminster set sitcom. There were other examples, but there aren't many. There really aren't that many. The only other one that came to mind was House of Cards, which is, mm. which is more... Mm. A, a serious drama but the idea of the machiavellian you're talking about the british the british version. i'm talking about the british version good, yeah good, good. the yes. kind of Mach machiavellian operating some of that reminds me of yes minister yes minister's mm. done in a caricatured comedic way whereas mm -hmm. house of cards is done in a much more serious way but i don't know about the timings of, of those two in terms of which which came out first um, well yeah that's an interesting question that was outside my remit it's not sitcom but i do remember it because uh I, I yeah i would think that was to be a bit later i would guess late 80s it's early 90s 1990 yeah richardson um, well, anyway, it started Ian Richardson as Francis Urquhart. And, you know, if you've heard of House of Cards and you're thinking Netflix, it was remade in America many years later. But yeah, it was basically about Francis Urquhart was a politician and he used skullduggery and literal murder to, to get to the top. And it was it was he was so Machiavellian. It was really it was a really great drama. Mm, I've talked about Game of Thrones a lot. Um but Game of Thrones feels mm -hmm. like uh, yes. I wouldn't I wouldn't draw a direct line to yes minister necessarily, uh, but it does feel like it's in a similar category of interested in Definitely. Kind of the operations of government. And you've got characters like Littlefinger and Varys who are the permanent civil they service are. of the Game of Thrones world. Yeah. They run the the small the small council, and they are they have their own interests. And maybe you have a Varys who is coming at it for, more from the, the good of the realm, altruism. And then yeah. you've got a little finger yeah. who's probably more in the Anthony J perspective of saying, well, I don't mind about the realm. I just mind about whether or not yeah. I'm, I'm going to sit on the iron throne at, at the end of it. So these yeah. themes yeah. just play out, don't they? Even, even, yeah. to, to, even to today. So what about, it strikes me that people often base their understanding of what politics and politicians are like. And we've touched on this a little bit on shows like this, probably more so often than they do on books or watching House of Commons debates or other other things like that. What, what do you think about that? Is that for better, for worse, in terms of the public's understanding of well, these things? For better or for worse? I, well, I tell you what, before I try and answer that, I, I completely agree with the premise of your question. Mm. I think that, you know, I, I'm a relatively politically engaged person, but 
and the thick of it is how I think of the Blair era. You know that did that, and I I did watch House of Commons debates. You know, I I was that nerd. But I, I think for better or for worse, it's true. People think Alistair Campbell and Malcolm Tucker are the same thing. The counter argument is that it it can then tend to over cynicism, where all politicians mm. are mm. Uh, X Y Z, and you have a you have a very kind of end of deference approach to yeah. politicians. But you asked you asked, is it for better or for worse? I don't really answer that question. I think it's. I think it's for worse, but I don't know what the alternative is because you're not going to get everybody watching education questions. You know, it's just not going to happen. So if we want people to engage with politics, then it has to be made more accessible. And the very act of editing, making things more accessible is is a choice, isn't it? It's a it's an editorial choice. And, you know, we're talking about sitcoms here, but it's how the news present, what the news reports it, it, it's the world we live in. I think it is, it, it is probably for worse, but there is really no alternative. Maybe it's it's for better in terms of entertainment. It, it certainly is good for sure. for sitcoms, sure. but possibly for worse in terms of politics. Which, which and those two yeah. things might always sit sit in sit in in, in different in different bo- boxes. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so to wrap to wrap things up a bit, are, are there any kind of particular moments or great quotes that you want you you want to point people towards? Or even episodes, if if people were going to going to kind of give this a go, watching Yes Minister. I mentioned the uh, series three, episode one, which is the equal opportunities one. That's a really interesting one. Series two, episode one, is called the Compassionate Society, and that's the one where they have the hospital, which is is open and the most efficient hospital in the country, but doesn't actually have any patients. It's kind of the whole point of Yes Minister reduced to absurdity so i think that's a really good episode to kind of see how how it all boils down the other one w- that came to my mind was there's one called open government it might even mm. be one of the first ones which is a classic qu- civil servant question is open government in many ways uh camp could be really positive but then has has the the challenges if you're in government that it means if you float an idea as a, as a suggestion then it could be in the tabloids the next day as yeah. kind of Government is going to do X, Y, Z, you know, uh, yeah. all of that kind of things. That's something you read about a lot as a news consumer. You read about now civil servants, well, not civil servants, but politicians, perhaps civil servants as well, using things like WhatsApp to communicate mm-hmm. rather than official minutes and, and emails because exactly that. Not because there's anything devious going on, but they just want every moment of their thought process to be exposed in, in five years' time, which I, I kind of get that. I understand that. Mm, yeah, it can be hard. it can be hard to do the sort of initial brainstorming of putting lots of ideas on the table if you know that your yeah. your suggestion that was just uh, a bit of blue sky thinking is going to become splashed on on the headlines the next day um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's why you talked about tony blair it's why tony blair famously regretted the freedom of information act he, he says he wished he'd, he'd, he'd never done that yes. for, for i think those yeah. kind of reasons little clips if people want to do uh, even small clips because there are a lot of clips that go around about yes minister there's one about the the papers way to understand the press is to remember that they pander to their readers' prejudices. Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. (laughs) The Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. The Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. The Financial Times is read by people who own the country. The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. (laughs) The Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. (laughs) I'm Prime Minister. What about the people who read The Sun? 
Sun readers don't care who runs the country as long as she's got big tits. <laughs> I think that might be our closer. <laughs> There's that. Well, thanks for joining me on this one, Gareth. It's been great having a, a sitcom perspective on. I've really on enjoyed it, Harry. It's been it's yeah. been, well. It's been interesting to get your perspective on the sitcom as well. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And thanks everyone for for listening. And we'll put uh, information uh, in the show notes as well, links to things. I'm sure. Um, thanks everyone for listening to this one.